Coming to you from the Media Factory in Burlington South End, this is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP Burlington. Hey folks, my name is Infinite, and for almost a decade, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. Many years ago, one of my favorite community organizers of all time, Bob Moses, warned that in our country, we've been running a share crop of education, meaning that the education we usually wind up receiving in our public schools is largely predetermined and based on the family we're born into. And if we carry that forward into the information age, then we'll have serfs in our towns and cities, just like we had serfs in the Delta, Mississippi during the industrial era. This is the huge challenge facing our country, he said. This prophecy by Bob Moses is now upon us. Welcome to Back to Freedom School, a deeper dive into education equity in the state of Vermont where we'll be discussing issues like school funding, literacy, labor, community schools, and the various ways that white supremacy culture shows up as one of the root problems in our public education system. Thank you for listening. And today we have Steph Yu from Public Access Institute. Hi, Steph. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Can you please tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and a little bit about how you got here? Sure. So I'm the Deputy Director of Public Assets Institute, and we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit fiscal policy think tank in Montpelier. That's how we usually describe ourselves. So what we do is we look at state-level tax, economic, and fiscal policy and really think about its impact on everyday Vermonters, low and moderate-income Vermonters, and how we can have a state that works for everyone. And how I got here, that's a, that's a good question. So I've been in Vermont um, at Public Assets for about the last six years now, and really came to it by working in in other states at, in different policy capacities. So state of Michigan, state of West Virginia, and really seeing kind of just the, the many ways in which our policies fail different groups of people and really st- trying to think about things in a systemic way. You know, my, my last job was working with AmeriCorps programs. So more direct services and really seeing as great as some of those programs are when, when every year you've got kids who need reading help like it tells you that there's something more going on, that there's a systemic problem that probably needs a policy solution. So that's sort of the short version of how I got here and what public assets does. And just so you know, you were a special request. Someone asked, hey, can you have Steph you on the on wow. program? Yep, yep. Uh, so... Yeah, here we are. Um, I hope I live up to it then. <laughs> so so can you get a little bit more specific about uh, some of the uh, issues or projects that uh, Public Assets is working on? The two biggest things probably over the last year and a half that we've been working on are one, we do a lot of work with education funding. We've, we have a background in that and, you know, really thinking about how education funding is serving or not serving the kids of Vermont. And I think probably you're well aware of the of that's been a pretty hot topic, particularly around the issues of pupil waiting um, that has come up in the last year and a half um, since the waiting study co- came out. Another big chunk is looking at the COVID relief and a lot of federal dollars coming into Vermont, where it's going, who it's helping, whether it's helping, sort of all those pieces. And I think everybody, 
everybody's been thinking about kind of the, the impact of these dollars and also the potential of these dollars because they're not all allocated yet. And so how can we kind of really target where they need to be and think those through? So those are sort of the two biggest recent things, I would say. Um, speaking more generally, every time at about the, every year about this time, we are working on our state of working Vermont report, which is really it's kind of our state of the state, really looking at families, how they're doing, Vermont workers, how they're doing and sort of what are the changes. And obviously this has been the pandemic has been a roller coaster for all, for all involved. So so this report is going to look a little different than it has in past years, I think. Yeah, I bet. Can we just take a little uh, step back and and say more about pupil waiting uh, so that people can really understand what that, get a better understanding of what that means, pupil waiting? So our edu- I think people, anyone in Vermont is pretty aware that our education funding system is complicated and feels pretty complicated, both to interact with and to administer and, you know, to, to have conversations about. But in a lot of ways, our education funding system is one of the most equitable in the country. We have this statewide system where people are sharing the resources. So what that means for the bottom line is that is that student funding in a town is not dependent on what that town can raise, right? Everybody's sharing resources. So all kids have access to these resources. So that's sort of the fundamental level of equity that we have uh, in Vermont that a lot of states don't. But then we have these two tools on top of that where we really kind of take a statewide perspective on costs that differ from student to student or from district to district. And then we figure out ways to, to cover those costs or at least some part of those costs so that the district is not bearing the burden of those additional costs by itself. And those two ways are categorical aid and people waiting. And the way that people waiting works is that it essentially allows a district to act like they have more kids than they have, right? So they get the funding for more kids than they have. We wait for economic disadvantage, so kids in poverty, we wait for English language learners, and then we wait for grade level. So secondary students are weighted a little bit more. Pre-K actually count as slightly less than a student. Our town tax rates are set based on our per pupil spending in our district. The number of pupils you have affects what your per pupil spending is, which affects your tax rates. So a, a lot of this study, so the legislature a few years ago now ordered this study to determine whether our current waiting system is is adequate. So for example, a kid coming from an economically disadvantaged background counts as 1.25 kids, right? So more than one kid. Uh, and the question was, are those the right weights? Are and and really the goal of the weights is to say, is to say, are we, is it enough funding to erase differences in outcomes among these from this group of kids to a group of kids that aren't facing these circumstances. This was contracted out to a couple of academics, one from UVM, one from Rutgers. And the study was released um, not quite two years ago, but just sort of pre-pandemic. So uh, has sort of gotten a little bit lost in the pandemic conversation. But the study came out and, and the resounding answer was no, the weights are not adequate to accomplish that, that they would need to be much bigger. But really the, the main finding of the study was that there's a lot of kids that are not getting the resources that they need and what's the best way to get the resources to those kids. So, and there, and that's where the debate is right now. The debate is what's the best way to get the resources to these kids. It would it be drastically changing the weights, which we have some concerns about, or would it be some other sort of targeted aid that would get, that would make sure that the aid goes to the kids or the kids and districts, you know, in some cases, it's sort of a district cost and not a sort of per kid cost. What's the best way to do that? So there's a task force, a legislative task force working on it now, and they have to make a recommendation to the legislature by the middle of December. And then the legislature will continue this discussion in this upcoming session. 
Great, thank you for that. And if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, this is a question around uh, how much money school districts get or supervisory unions get, and not necessarily a discussion about how districts or supervisory unions use those funds. That's right. So it's not about how they use the funds, and there's really no recommendation about for what the money was spent on in districts that are you know, achieving better outcomes. There's really not a conversation about that. But I'll even take a step further back and say that, you know, Vermont has this statewide funding system, but we balance it with local control. So really, ultimately, this is a change in taxing capacity. Weights would change taxing capacity. So they don't necessarily move funding. It's, it's up to the district still. It's up to the district's voters and the school boards to determine what their budget will be. We're just adjusting what tax rate. With a change in weights, the state would just be adjusting the tax rates you know, to get to that amount of money. Okay. So do you know, have you come across in Vermont or in previous years in your experience studies that are looking at the, the back end? You know, like what uh, how to maximize the utility of those dollars, what we're getting, you know, for the money in terms of, you know, outcomes? That's, that's a really good question. I think there are, there are certainly studies about some of the things that are, you know, that are effective, not just for kids in poverty, but for sort of, you know, anytime a district has a number of kids with additional needs, you know, small class sizes, specific interventions, a lot of it comes down to resources. But I think I think it is important to, to recognize that the weighting study that came out didn't talk about how to spend the money, but also was really focused on reading and math outcomes. So really looking at what is the average outcome for reading and math across the state, and then really focusing on, on getting kids to that average outcome. So which sort of leaves a couple of other questions about this. One, do we think the average outcome is is right, right? Like, is that the goal? And and second, what about things other than reading and math? It's not that we think those things are unimportant. We're not saying that those things are unimportant. So how are we funding the things other than reading and math? So I think there's sort of, it raises a lot of questions that aren't really answered. You know, I've been following what the Burlington School District's been doing because that's where I live. And, you know, that's you know where I've been organizing uh, for a while. And I am trying to better understand uh, this new budgeting process that they just recently revealed, right? Which they are calling an equitable budgeting uh, based on a model to build school-based engagement. Any thoughts about this new approach to budgeting in Burlington or in general? So, you know, my kids are also in the Burlington School District. So I, you know, I've been paying attention to this process a bit too, both sort of as a parent and in my professional capacity. And a couple of thoughts. First, I, I think, again, sort of talk, coming back to this, this balancing act between what we do at the state level and what we do at the local level. I think that's a lot of what this conversation is about, which is we can sort of decide what things we want to, we want to cover at the state level. We can acknowledge which costs, you know, which, which, groups of kids might need additional resources and we can kind of direct money in those ways at the state level. But really the decision of how to spend the money is happening at the local level. The, the majority of the money, you know, again, there's a couple of pieces of there's federal aid, there's trans, transportation dollars, and those are, you know, clearly for a specific purpose. Wow. But most of the money is really getting determined at the district level. And again, you know, Burlington is sort of to some extent, its own animal in the state because it's a big district. It has a lot of schools. So 
more than a lot of other districts, they might have to make prior, you know, they have to set their own priorities about which schools are getting what. But, you know, that happens to some extent in, in lots of districts. And so Burlington has had sort of its own kind of equity formula and its own process for how it distributes the money within a district. Again, so you get this these total education payments from the state education fund, and then it's really up to the district where to put those dollars. I think that the Burlington thought process makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're looking at, I think, one, increasing community engagement is always important. It matters whose voices are heard, but I think community engagement is critical to any of this stuff working. I do think that looking at the categories of kids that we wait, you know, Burlington has a large English language learning population. Burlington has a pretty high rate of poverty relative to the rest of the state. But even among the elementary schools, you see these differences in numbers across all those fronts. So I think, you know, Burlington's sort of trying to take this approach of what this looks like, get more involvement from the parents and the schools. I mean, the principals are really critical in this whole process and always have been in the in the budgeting process, like really sort of saying what their schools need. But I think starting with a base of we know that these schools have, you know, higher shares of kids in these categories who are going to need more resources. We're going to fund those those kids and we're going to attend to those priorities. So, so I think what Burlington is setting up, you know, makes some sense. I think a lot of it is in the implementation process. But I think there's also this acknowledgement that that having those decisions be made at the local level can also have the opposite effect, right? Like it can mean that that there is decision making where they're directing, you know, where funds are being directed, maybe not in the way the state is sort of recommending or encouraging. And so what do you do in that situation? We've always had this sort of balancing act between where the state guides or dictates and what where the local has authority. And, and our default tends to be the locals get to decide as much as possible. But there also has to be a conversation about if a district is not getting the resources to the kids that need the most, what are the avenues for intervention? Right. In some of my own research, I've had a difficult time with finding, you know, some longitudinal data that I can use and look at to, you know, provide me with some insight on what does improving outcomes look like. That question about longitudinal data, what information or, or indicators would you find the most useful in understanding how well your kid is doing? That's a great question. I mean, you're 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 a parent now. You know how fast these years <laughs> go by, right? Like yeah. before you know it, your kid is in seventh grade um, in yeah. middle school. And so I, I think that's one of the trickiest parts is there's, you know, one of the trickiest parts about sort of longitudinal data is kids are just, they, they move, they keep going. So what we can say about third graders this year and what we can say about third graders five years ago is not the same third graders. Just for a little context, over a decade ago, Burlington school officials were considering shutting down H.O. Wheeler, which we know as the Integrated Arts Academy, and Lawrence Bonds, which we now call the Sustainability Academy, the Old North End's two elementary schools. Both were failing institutions with declining enrollments and the lowest test scores among the city's six primary schools. As a solution, the Burlington School Board decided that an emphasis on sustainability and the arts would be potential draws for progressive-minded parents of means. P. 
People supporting the magnet model also argued that the neighborhood kids would also benefit from what some considered innovative pedagogy that used the arts and environmental education as tools for teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Years later, it's still unclear to many whether this experiment in rebranding has actually improved educational experiences and outcomes especially for the most vulnerable children in Burlington's Old North End. I have one kid still at the Integrated Arts Academy in the Old North End, and my older kid went through that school. And, you know, the concept of the magnet schools more than a decade ago now was this sort of socioeconomic integration and and having this sort of mission-specific kind of identity sort of ever since that point, I feel like there's been this conversation over how well are we evaluating whether this worked or not? Have outcomes improved? Okay, but have outcomes improved just because we have kids with more privilege coming in who are bringing the average up? Or are we actually improving outcomes for all the kids? Or what does this look like? And I think there's been a sense that that that's really difficult to measure and difficult to know. and, And that's part of why I want people to understand that the narrowness of the scope of the weighting study, which is reading and math, reading and math outcomes, when especially after the year and a half that we've had of this rocky pandemic, which has interrupted kids learning and is still interrupting kids learning and and their socio-emotional development, you know, how do we, we need to rethink how we're measuring any of this stuff, how we're measuring well-being, progress, so I, so I, I think I kind of avoided a specific answer to your question um, because I don't know, because I think it's a complicated question. And, and I do think that there's going to be a couple years worth of ramifications, if not much longer term ramifications of what the pandemic has meant for kids. And, and I'll just say, like pandemic aside, right, and one of the, I guess, yeah, I guess you can call it a peeve. Um, and, and, I, and I'm really glad that you brought up the magnet schools because uh, one of the observations there was even this, just the switch. And so, yeah, sure. We don't know how to accurately measure um, and evaluate progress, um, but the switch in data systems, right. Going from, you know, at one point uh, we were using a system called Swiss uh, or something to a whole nother system, uh, you know, data collection and, and, and analysis, which I think, doesn't really help right and and having so yeah sure you're going to have a different set of third graders you know a few years uh but uh not being able to compare apples to apples right (laughs) like yeah how do we reconcile that like that's a really good question and i think it does come back to this part of the local piece of this you know you know the agency of education in vermont i mean there is supposed to be some standardized standardization of reporting of data I can say that sometimes that there are some areas where that works better than others. You know, we've worked on universal school meals. Some, you know, Hunger Free Vermont has really led that charge of getting universal school meals. And when we tried to kind of compare meal budgets across districts, it was almost impossible because every district does something different. You know, Burlington actually has goes out into the community and does events with their school budget, school food budget. So, you know, it's there's such different animals all across and it's a real challenge in terms of this. Have you ever experienced, you know, just in a, in a personal way, dissonance, you know, any dissonance between how you view student outcomes 
you know, an educational experience as an analyst versus being a parent, right? And your kids are in the school and you have like, you know, these multiple hats, like, have you ever experienced any tension there? Sure. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that it can be hard to kind of, I think both as parents and as community members, there's a sense of obligation to advocate for either your own personal kids or the kids in your community, right? And I think part of the question is, how do you conceptualize the kids in your community? And what does that look like? We, we chose IA in part because we sort of appreciated the, the thinking around the socioeconomic integration around the new American community, recognizing that the, the ELL classes that IA offers were, were sort of a part of the, the sort of the school community and that the school community really uh, made an effort to be inclusive in lots of ways. And so that was definitely a, a factor in, the, in that. But, you know, I do find myself wondering, like, does that mean that I'm sort of taking advantage of sort of the resources being put into the school? And is it helpful? Right? Is it helpful or is it distracting in some way? Is it helpful for, for middle class kids to come into the school? And yeah, is it is sort of net positive or not? You know, I, I wrestle with that. I don't know the answer to that question. But, but I also think sort of thinking more broadly about funding, like I, I, I have found myself kind of rethinking a lot of pieces. I think I've heard teachers, I've had, you know, talked to my kids' teachers and, and heard them talk, sort of lament the lack of like gifted and talented programs in Burlington, or just acknowledge that we may or may not be able to challenge your kid and good luck with that, you know, and that's sort of the, the response. And I, you know, and I've also talked to school board members who have who have suggested that that meeting the needs of all kids shouldn't have to be a choice between which kids you prioritize and which kids you don't prioritize. That being said, I also I also look at sort of this big picture, this statewide lens. I look at the outcomes. I look at particularly thinking about low income kids, but also uh, kids of color and particularly black kids thinking about sort of the discipline rates and sort of the, uh, how the nature of systemic racism makes itself felt in schools. And I come back to, we have to correct. <laughs> There's a corrective needed. And so what does that look like? Does it look like taking resources from better funded schools? Again, that's not the system we have. The system we have is the locals decide. And so how much of that is as a community member, your obligation is to hold your school board members accountable, vote, go to the budget meetings, have these conversations. Don't complain when your librarian gets cut because they're going somewhere else or, or do because you think that that's something that's important to, to especially, you know, the kids who's, who need more resources. You know, it's really hard. And I also think, you know, these are really personal conversations for, for people. You know, I think people care about their kids, want, want what's best for their kids, also want what's best for their community and all of the kids. And sometimes those things are hard to reconcile. And I, you know, I, I, I do think it's a challenge. You know, I, I've, I think we've talked before about sort of, you know, my kind of recognizing that a lot of times the history of sort of like PTO involvement tended to be sort of white middle-class parents with, with some leisure time, right? And, and maybe some disposable money to like support these things. And that that whole model is really sort of messed up in the in the current system. And yet, is the answer then that you don't get involved? Like, or is the answer that you find some other way to get involved? Like, it's just, it is hard. And I think that a lot of people are trying to do the right thing and struggle with what that is and how to do it. Right. Just taking a step back to the magnet schools in particular, do you know if there were 
other options outside of the magnet school uh, approach? The way that I've been told the history, and again, I don't know how much of this is sort of official versus like one person's, you know, a couple of people's perceptions about what happened. The way that I, that I understood it was that the choice was shut the schools down or do this. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if that was who decided that that was the choice, right? Somebody along the line probably decided if, if that was in fact sort of what the choices came down to, then who made those calls and, and why. So, you know, I think that was the, the premise, but, you know, I mean, kind of looking at it from the lens of 2021, is it problematic to say that, that the way to attract middle-class parents to send their kids to, to a school that was otherwise struggling was that you needed a hook, right? Like you needed this integrated arts hook or you needed the sustainability hook, you needed to pitch to sell it. And if you put your resources into selling that pitch to middle-class parents, as opposed to your resources into what the kids already in the school needed, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't here at that time. We weren't involved. We didn't have kids at that, you know, at the right age at that point. But that's the way I understood it. And I think that there has been a lot of thoughtful conversation around is this the right thing to do? How are we measuring? How are we measuring improvements? If we're not, if we're not able to measure academic improvements, are we able to measure kids' well-being improvements? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just about the academics, it's also about sort of these other things. And then, and then the other thing that I will say, and and I think we've had this conversation in other in other contexts, which is how much is it reasonable to expect of the schools? Mm -hmm. Right. In terms of if kids are coming into school in kindergarten having grown up in poverty. And, and the school is expected to repair whatever harm has been done by that. That's a big ask. And I'm not sure it's the only conversation here. I mean, I think there's a whole lot of, there's a much bigger conversation about what are we doing so that kids don't show up at school having spent the last five years in poverty. And that's a very different question. Yeah, that it, it is. And, it, and I can't hear that question without thinking about community schools, which we don't need to get into detail, you know, right now, but I guess I'm, I'm curious in a broader sense, what do you see as a, as some of the challenges and opportunities um, in the current and future policy, political landscape of public education in Vermont here? I think community schools are definitely a big opportunity. And I know that there's a number of sort of districts that are working on, working on what that looks like. I think the, the concern is that community schools are a stand-in for wrap for a school that provides wraparound services, which is it's when they're a whole lot more than that. Uh -huh. um, so I think that, you know, it's all in sort of how you understand what a community school is. I think really ultimately what it's about is taking collective responsibility for making sure that kids' needs are met, whether it's in at school or in other places. I think, I mean, schools are clearly a key delivery system for getting services to kids and for getting kids the resources they need. That's always going to be true. Yeah. Part of the question is, how do you define public education? You know, we have a pre-K program. How much further back do we go to, into early childhood education? How much far forward do we go in terms of community college and sort of, you know, grade 13, 14, whatever we want to call it. But it's really about sort of the collective investment in the in the success of all the kids. And how do we define success, right? Mm -hmm. If you had a magic wand, <laughs> <Bye. you> know, <laughs> what series of policy, programmatic, um, or, or, or combination of uh, policy, pro programmatic, and uh, procedural changes would you wave into existence? Ooh, 
this doesn't have to be limited to schools either, does it? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think there's a lot. <laughs> the list is long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would start with the idea that the collective responsibility for for kids is is beyond education. And so what does it look like to make sure everybody has a livable income? So starting with let's get rid of poverty, right? Let, let, let's just let's just do that. And let's also acknowledge that even getting rid of poverty does not solve all of the problems in terms of and even calling them disparate outcomes is problematic, right? Because how we define outcomes, really what we're measuring is sort of the harm we're doing certain groups of kids, I think, because of systemic racism or because of other biases. So start, let's start with erasing poverty, you know, whatever that looks like. So livable income, you know, we've always said that a livable income is really, you know, there's an employer responsibility and there's also a, a government responsibility in those two pieces, right? So whether it's a mix of tax credits, but it's also about livable wages. But for people who, who are able to work or not able to work, they should still have a livable income. So it's also about making sure that, that that's possible. So that's, that, I think that's the first, that's the big, the big wave of the wand would start there. And then I think the rest of the problems you have to solve get narrower. Is it livable wage uh, income or is it guaranteed income? Like, is it, you know, because there are some uh I don't know whether to call it programs or what, but guaranteed income, how, how, how are we framing it now? So part of it is, what do we mean by that? Right. It's, it's, I think it should definitely be guaranteed whether or not it's just guaranteed cash payment. I think it's a combination of a lot of, of a lot of things. I think there's investment in our childcare system. I think there's investment in housing. So early education, childcare, you know, I think these conversations are very, are complicated because families are making different choices. But I think there's a base level of early education that should be provided for, and then there's investment in childcare, right? So, so the point is to get to a livable income, the, li- the, the amount of livable income you need goes down if the state is providing you, if, if you have healthcare and you have ho- stable housing and you have food security and you have ch- childcare covered, right? So, so that number is sort of a moving target, depending on how much you're investing on these other pieces. We can invest on the cost side and help people out on the cost side and, and not even help people out, but sort of guarantee a basic, a basic level of, of decent living. I think there's a lot of sort of levers to press there before you get to a dollar amount. But, but at the end of the day, the dollar amount should get you there, yeah. right? Like all these things together should get you there. And based on sort of your thermometer in the political landscape in Vermont, how far away would you say from, you know, just in terms of, you know, an appetite for moving in that direction on a, say on a scale of uh, one to 10, 10 being we're all in. Ooh, I got to name a numerical value here. You know, I, I think we're this, I think this is the, the most willing we've been, we've been to talk about it. Hmm. in generations, right? So I, I I don't know, I might put it at a six. I think the federal conversation is huge. I think there's a lot happening at the federal level, which would again, kind of narrow what Vermont would have to do. It's a heck of a lot easier if a lot of these decisions are made at the federal level, like the child tax credit became permanent. That's a lot of money going into families' pockets that then the state doesn't have to figure out. So then the state can start to look at where are the other cracks that we could fill in. Mm-hmm. It's not that the state doesn't have a role, but their role does get more manageable, I think. So yeah, I'd say a six. I think it's it's a more interesting conversation. I think the pandemic did, you know, point to a lot of the challenges that were already there, but just made people a lot more aware and also aware of the fact that the government aid can work. Like you can get dollars into people's pockets quickly and into the pockets of people who need them and 
and make it happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any closing thoughts or remarks before we wrap up? No, we've jumped around a lot from education funding, but um, <laughs> no, I appreciate you have me. Yeah, no, I think I appreciate you making the time. You you're a very busy person, and uh, it's like the middle of the week and the middle of the day, and so I'm really uh, grateful that we were able to figure this out. Um, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks again for joining us. If you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions about anything you heard, please feel free to reach out. You can contact me at infinite at voicesforvtkids.org. You can also visit our website to learn more about our work at voicesforvtkids.org. Shout out to Mike Device with the Thomas Instrumentals and Athena with all the technical support.